morning, roads dry, uh, no snow. And then about seven, when other people were getting here, they came into my office going, like, what are we doing? <laughs> and uh, well, we're here. And I appreciate you coming. Well, people are really good at building walls. Let me give you a few examples. Most of us have heard of the Great Wall of China. Its construction began as early as 700 B.C. and continued over a period of 500 years. That's longer than we've been a nation. It was built in sections, and the wall stretches some 5,500 miles, some of it 26 feet high and 30 feet wide. It is so monstrous it can be seen from space. I thought till I looked it up. That's a myth. But it's a good myth. But, but why was it built? Primarily as a border to keep China secure from traveling nomads and mili military excursions. I want you to get that. In other words, it was built to keep people out, to separate people, because we are really good at building walls. Second illustration from antiquity, Hadrian's Wall in northern England, named after the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Construction began about 122 uh, A.D. along the northernmost border of, uh, of the Roman Empire there in, in England. Not nearly as magnificent as the Great Wall. It was still quite impressive. Some places were 20 feet high, some 20 feet wide, and it stretched some 73 miles. Now, historians debate the purpose of the wall, but most agree that it was built as a defensive fortification to keep those pesky Scots out. I am a pesky Scot. <laughs> I mean, no, really, I'm Scottish. <laughs> but it was, most agree it was also there to regulate trade. The point is the wall was built to separate people because we are really good at erecting walls. Now let's roll the clock forward a couple thousand years, shall we? Most of us know something about the Berlin Wall. Built in 1961 during the Cold War, the wall completely surrounded West Berlin, which found itself in the middle of East Germany. So the wall was built to separate East Germany from uh, uh, West Berlin, from East Berlin, and of course, from communist East Germany. Originally, Constructed of barbed wire, it uh, was replaced with a concrete wall. It took 10 years to build, 65 to 75. It was 12 feet high, 4 feet wide, and 87 miles long. It was built, you see, supposedly to keep Western and fascist influences out of East Germany, but most really understand today that it was built to keep East Germans in, from, keep them from defecting to West Berlin. Of course, we also know the wall fell on November 9th, 1989. The point is, the wall was built to separate people, East and West Germans, because we are really good at building walls. You may know that right now in Israel, a wall is being constructed for security reasons to separate Palestinians and Jews in the West Bank. When completed, it will be 430 miles long, like the Great Wall of China, the concrete wall is 26 feet 
tall. We were privileged to be there in 2005, and I got to see some of this monstrosity. Israel says the security fence is needed to protect its citizen from terror attacks and, and suicide bombers because we are really good at building walls. You may also know that the United States has considered building a similar barrier along its southern border with Mexico. The border itself is 1,900 miles long and is, I didn't know this till this week, is the most crossed international border in the world. Like 350 million legal crossings made annually. That's more crossings than people that we have in the U.S. Of course, that doesn't include all those illegal crossings, which I suppose is the challenge. Not going to get into the political arguments about this so-called closed porous border. I'm simply going to say we are really good at building walls, even us, to keep out those pesky Mexicans. Those walls that we build may be physical, like the examples that I just gave, but they may also be non-physical, immaterial, but just as effective nonetheless. They may be political, ideological, religious, social, racial, ethnic, national, or even relational boundaries. You see, this world is, built, is made up of barriers and boundaries, walls between people, after all, as the American poet Robert Frost once said, good fences make good neighbors. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the Christian faith, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is, re is really good at breaking down those walls, every conceivable wall. At least it's supposed to. And in Paul's closing of his letter to the church at Colossae, which we started last week, this morning we see some beautiful illustrations of this truth as Christianity breaks down walls. You see, far from being a meaningless list of names, Paul illustrates what the gospel does in the lives of people who have been divided, who have been separated in this very broken world. Read the text with me. Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. No, we are not going to finish the book this week either. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also just, uh, Jesus, who is called Justice. Uh, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Wasn't that exciting? Again, at first glance, looks like just a bunch of 
just a list of names to me, he kind of blah, blah, blah. Sounds like he's kind of dictating his letter, gets to the end and, and says, you know, et cetera, et, et cetera. And whoever the secretary was added some niceties before Paul takes up the pen to add his signature uh, at the end in his own hand. That's verse 18. We'll get to that. Well, eventually. But there, there is so much more here than first meets the eye. Last week, we saw this letter closing could be outlined as follows. Paul's messengers, and that's, what we, that's what we looked at last week, this, this morning, as far as we're going to get today, Paul's co-workers, and then next week, Paul's greetings and Paul's um, signature. I, I dare you to read those verses and try and figure out what in the world am I going to say next week. Last week, we looked at Paul's messengers, Tychicus, with whom Paul um, sent the letters to Ephesus, Colossae, Philemon, and likely a lost letter to Laodicea um, was the first guy. While Tychicus' name only appears five times in the New Testament, usually just in those very exciting lists of names, we found him to be a trusted colleague of Paul, a man to whom we are eternally indebted. You see, because of his faithfulness in staying by Paul's side in the tough times, because of his faithfulness um, in delivering these letters, we have them in our Bibles, one of which we are eventually going to finish. Now, Onesimus, we saw, was a runaway slave who came to faith. He, he ran away to Rome, smack dab into Paul, came to faith in Jesus Christ, and Paul is now sending him back to his master, who also happens to be a Christian. The master's name is Philemon, so we're going we're gonna to look at this story when we get to that book. Which brings us then this morning to the, to the second point, Paul's co-workers in verses 10 to 14. These are men who are still with Paul while he's under house arrest in Rome, and so they send greetings to the church in Colossae. Now, before we even look at the list, the first thing that we should remember, if you go all the way back to our beginning of this letter, the first thing we remember is that Paul had never been to the church at Colossae, right? He didn't start it. And it's likely that most of these men, his partners in ministry, had never been there either. So I want you to catch that. Paul sends a letter to a church to which he'd never been. The, these men send greetings to a church to which most of them had never been. My point is, one of the first walls of division that we see coming down here are church walls. Because churches are really good at building walls. Not only do we build walls to keep those pesky, dirty sinners out, but to keep other churches and other Christians out because they don't do it like we do it. They don't believe exactly what we believe. They're wrong and we're right like it's some kind of competition. It's crazy how easy it is for us to become isolated and, and, and local church focused and even denominationally focused. Like our particular group is like all that. And we're the ones that are doing it right. God must be most pleased with us. And I want to suggest this morning the first walls that Christianity needs to demolish are the ones we've erected. 
walls between believers, especially between churches. Paul and his merry band of men were concerned about another church in another city, in another country, in another continent, one to which most of them had never been. Amazing. Well, Paul then lists six names in these verses, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, those three names go together. And then Epaphras, Luke, and Demas, those three names go together. Look at the names. Aristarchus, like Tychicus, um, appears five times in the New Testament. The first time is at a riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Now, this is near the end of Paul's third missionary journey and also at the end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus. And we read that while he was in Ephesus, all those who were in Asia, and Asia is referring to Asia Minor, which is Western, modern-day Western Turkey, all those in Asia heard the gospel. So it's most likely it was during these three years that the churches in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis were, were founded. See, Ephesus was an important port city, and people would come from all over Asia Minor, and when they arrived, they would hear Paul's preaching. Many were converted. They took the gospel back with them. One of them was a guy named Epaphras. He's in the next list, but Epaphras, who took the gospel back to Colossae. But, but, but why the riot? Well, you'll remember that Paul's preaching of the gospel was so effective in Ephesus that it affected, it impacted the economy. So many people were turning to Christ, to faith in Christ, that cells of this little silver idol of, of Artemis or Diana, those sales were dropping off. So silversmiths in the city, well, they got all upset. Our pocketbooks are being affected. So they called a they called a meeting, and the meeting turned into a riot. And so they ran to get Paul. They couldn't find him. So they, they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus into the theater, who were, who were no doubt then roughly treated, perhaps even beaten in the uproar. This is the first time we see this guy's name. The next time we see him is in the very next chapter when Paul has to leave Ephesus and he leaves for Jerusalem. We, we looked at this verse last week, but let's read it again because it gives us some important information. And he was accompanied, he, Paul, was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of, of Asia. So, so here we see that Aristarchus is from Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is a city across the Aegean Sea from Turkey, Asia Minor, um, in Macedonia, or in modern-day um, Greece. Paul had traveled to that city during his second missionary journey, which is likely when Aristarchus became a Christian. Don't know if he joined Paul then or sometime during this third missionary journey when he's hanging out in Ephesus. The point is, he, he was with Paul in Ephesus during the riot, and then he went with Paul to Jerusalem, which means that he, like Tychicus from last week, was there when Paul was beaten at the temple, arrested, jailed in Jerusalem, and then sent to Caesarea where he was imprisoned for two years. So that's where we are. He's, he's been in prison in Caesarea for two years. The next time that we see Archicus's name is at the end of that two-year jail term in Caesarea. Paul, we saw, was tired of being in prison with no right to a speedy trial, so he appealed his case to Caesar. 
And, and he gets put on a ship to Rome, and we read in Acts 27, 2, that Aristarchus was with him, which means Aristarchus goes through the shipwreck with Paul. He, he also appears to go through the two-year house arrest with Paul in Rome, because here he is near the end of that time, writing these prison epistles. He's still with Paul, sending his own personal greetings. In, in fact, so close was he to Paul that Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. Because you got to understand something. Aristarchus has been with Paul for four years. Four years. And, and so Colossians is the fourth time that his name appears. The last time is in the next prison epistle, Philemon, where he sends his greetings there. So that's the picture that we have of Aristarchus. Wasn't that very exciting? Next person Paul mentions is the cousin of Barnabas named Mark, also known as John Mark. I'm going to come back to him at the end of our sermon, but let me just give you a little introduction. The first time that we see his name mentioned is in Jerusalem with the disciples in Acts chapter 12. They're all at Mark's mother's house. Mark's mother's name is Mary, and they have gathered to pray for Peter to be released from jail. I hope you notice a theme going on here. It be a Christian cost you something. Christians are being thrown in jail all over the place. That kind of plays a little havoc with that prosperity gospel, but we'll just leave that alone. And so, so they're there. Peter's in prison. They're there praying for Peter to be released. Remember, an angel shows up at jail, opens the door, lets Peter out, and so he goes over to Mary's house and knocks on the door. A servant girl named Rhoda goes and, and she says, who is it? And he says, it's Peter. She gets so excited, she goes running back to the prayer meeting and says, you're not going to believe who's at the door. Peter's at the door. And they say, don't interrupt us. We're praying for Peter. <laughs> if we go back, open the door. It's pretty exciting. It's the first time we meet John Mark. We'll come back to him. The third man on the list to send greetings is a man named Jesus. Not Jesus, Jesus, but Jesus is his Greek name, but he's also called Justice, which is his Roman name. He does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. This is all we know about him. That's exciting. But please notice in verse 11 that these first three men are Jews. They are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who were with Paul in Rome. And we read here that they were from the circumcision. That's simply a way of saying that they were Jews. And as such, they had proven to be an encouragement to Paul, who himself was a Jew, a fellow Christian Jews serving right alongside him. Why is this important? Because of the Next list of three men. Now hold on. L look at them. First is Epaphras, who is only mentioned here in Colossians and in Philemon. We already met him back in chapter 1. There we found that he's the guy who came to Rome to tell Paul about this problem of false teachers in um, Colossae. Uh, there we also learned that he was the one who planted the church there. He's the one that the Colossian church or the, the, the people of Colossae had heard the gospel from. Here in chapter 4, we find with Tychicus that he's also a, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very special title. Paul reserved it for himself and for Timothy and for Tychicus and now Epaphras. 
We also find out that he was one of their number, meaning the Colossians. He was from Colossae. As such, he had a very special place in his heart for the Colossians. So we read he is, he's always laboring earnestly for them in his prayers. It's an interesting way to describe prayer, don't you think? Laboring. Makes it sound like prayer is hard work. <laughs> and we get that, don't we? Especially if we are praying for family or friends who, who, whom we know and love who are facing danger like the Colossians were facing from those false teachers. So he labored in prayer for them. And his prayer was that they would stand perfect and fully assured of all of the will of God. In other words, he prayed that they would stand firm in full maturity, assured of all of God's will for them, as opposed to these false teachers. He was praying, Lord, Lord, help them to stand. Lord, help them to maintain their Christian orthodoxy and truth. Help them not to be swayed by false teaching. Help them to grow to full maturity and full assurance of your good and perfect will in their lives. Listen, this is a great prayer for us to pray for other believers. Lord, would you help them? Would you help us keep doctrinally pure and faithfully mature? It's a great prayer. Orthodoxy. Paul goes further. I can testify that Epaphras has a deep concern for you. He loves you deeply. He does not want you to go astray. You are the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Those, again, those nearby cities where Epaphras likely shared the gospel. Churches planted God, protect them. That's the first name in that second set of three names. And along with Epaphras, Luke and Demas send their greetings as well. This is the one place in the New Testament where we find out that Luke is actually a doctor, a physician. He's the beloved physician. Now, it is possible that he was traveling with Paul to take care of Paul's medical and physical needs, but we don't know that. That's just supposition. Now, it's very interesting that his name appears here in Philemon and then at the end of 2 Timothy. I, I, I didn't know that. I, I'd forgotten that. That's, that's, that's all. Just in those three books. But biblical scholarship agrees, as they compare Scripture with Scripture, that Luke is the author of the gospel that bears his name, and he is also the author of the book of Acts. We know that whoever wrote Luke wrote Acts, and most agree it was Luke, which is, which is interesting. Just let me take you on a little aside. If I asked you who wrote most of the New Testament, New Testament, many of you would say, well, Paul did. And you'd be right if we were talking about the number of books. I mean, Paul wrote 13 letters. Oh, you say, well, if it's not Paul, then it must be John. After all, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote Revelation, and he wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And you'd be, well, almost right. He did write an awful lot of the New Testament. But... In sheer volume, that is in number of words, Luke, the beloved physician who wrote Luke and Acts, wrote most of the New Testament. <laughs> and you go, why is that important? Hold on. 
we're, we're going somewhere, and I hope you're going with me this morning. Hope I haven't lost you. Let's look briefly at Demas, the last name on the list, first. He's only mentioned here in Philemon and in 2 Timothy as well. He's listed right alongside Luke. Don't know that much about him. He might be from Thessalonica because in 2 Timothy, we find that he returns there. We'll save our look at Demas for our study of 2 Timothy. What I want you to know at this point is these three men, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas are not Jews. They are Gentiles. So catch that. All of the authors of Scripture are Jews except one, Luke, a Gentile doctor who happened to write more of the New Testament than any other author. Well, you say, why is that important? Because I finally get in there. While we build walls, the Christian faith tears them down. After Paul sends Tychicus and Onesimus away with these letters, Paul is left with these six men, three Jews, and three Gentiles who are hanging out with each other. Do you understand how absolutely crazy that is? Jews and Gentiles, they don't mix. They don't get along. They just as soon spit at each other. They hated each other. There are lots of Bible stories that I could give to, to prove that, like Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the, at, at the well. But last Friday, as I was preparing to write this sermon, I first did my Bible reading, that daily reading that I challenged you to do, that I encouraged us to do over this year. And last Friday and then yesterday, the reading included Acts chapter 10. I couldn't believe it. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is hanging out with some Jews in Joppa because Peter's a Jew and that's what Jews do. They hang out with other Jews. He's on the roof waiting for lunch. He's hungry and then he falls into a trance. And in that trance, the sheet is let down from heaven with its, from its four corners. And in the sheet are all kinds of unclean animals. That is animals that were not permitted for Jews to eat, forbidden to them. And a voice, as the sheet comes down, a voice says to him, Peter, kill and eat. Time for an unclean animal smorgasbord. And, and, and Peter says, are you kidding me? No way, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean. And the voice said, Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And you should right now be going, amen. That's right, because I like bacon and I like shrimp. And I like bacon wrapped shrimp. <laughs> That's right. And you can eat it. But is that the point of the text? That's kind of a subpoint. You see, about this time, some Gentiles, so Peter's up on the roof in this trance. About this time, some Gentiles showed up at the house, knock on the door. They ask for Peter. They've been sent by a centurion named Cornelius. You see, Cornelius was a worshiper of the true God, but he didn't know anything about Jesus. So an angel appeared to Cornelius and said, I want you to send to Joppa for a guy named Peter. So these guys show up. They knock on the door, the Jewish door. They're Gentiles. They knock on a Jewish door to invite him to a house of a centurion. You need to understand a centurion was a Gentile. Peter says, well, okay, it's kind of odd. But when he gets there, he's first thing out of his mouth. He says, you yourselves know 
How unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with foreigners, you pesky, dirty Gentiles, or to visit him. Listen, Gentiles, there are walls, boundaries, divisions that separate us. I am not even supposed to be here. But God gave me a vision about unclean animals, and that's what you are, you're unclean animals. So why am I here? And Cornelius told Peter about his visit with this angel of God. So Peter says, well... I'll just preach the gospel, the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a great sermon, Acts chapter 10. And when he finished, the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles, and they began speaking in tongues. That's what the text says. In fact, we read these words. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. And Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? Because that's what Christianity does. It breaks down walls. That's what Paul said back in Colossians chapter 3. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeman, for we are all one in Christ. The gospel is about the business of making us into one new humanity called the church. And while divisions exist that people build, typically, well, physical and non-physical, political, ideological, religious, social, ethnic, racial, national, even relational, those of us, of us who are followers of Christ are all one. This was part of the mystery that Paul preached. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 2? We, we, we read these verses. It's kind of a long passage, but you'll get it. Therefore, remember that formerly you, you pesky, dirty Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision by the circumcision. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made both groups into one and broken, get it, get it, hear this, and broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's what Christianity does so that in himself he might make one the two into one new man establishing peace and might reconcile them in one body through the cross Christianity brings believers together and demolishes those barriers that we like to build and that we like to keep folks will you look around this room we are different people of different ethnic, national, social, economic, educational, and relational backgrounds. But we are all one in Christ. This is the truth of this closing. Very quickly then, very quickly back to Mark. Remember, he first appeared in Acts chapter 12, and there we also read that when Paul and cousin Barnabas left Jerusalem to go up to the church in Antioch, they also took John Mark with them. Here in Colossians, again, we see that Barnabas was, uh, they were cousins, so it was kind of a family thing. They go on their first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, and we read in Acts chapter 13 that Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, such that 
when they got ready to go on their second missionary journey in chapter 15, 13, 14, 15, they all go together, we read these words. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return, visit the churches, all right? See how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. First church split. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left and did the work. Here's the point. They, they, they took Mark on their first missionary journey, but he deserted them, returned to Jerusalem. He ran home to mommy. But when it was time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's give him a second chance. Let's take Mark again. Paul said, are you kidding me? No way. He quit last time, not taking him. And such a sharp disagreement arose that they separated. Barnabas took Mark. Paul took Silas. In other words, get this. Sometimes walls of separation can be built not only outside the church, not only between churches, but even within the same church, all in the name of ministry. You ever experienced that? A division while doing the work of ministry? You were doing the work of Christ, something happened, and oop, there went a wall. A relational division is erected. Can I tell you that when that happens, the work of Christ suffers and our enemy gets a foothold? That's the last time we hear of Mark until Colossians 4, where we find him with Paul. And he's not mentioned again until 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I need you to come see me, and I need you to bring Mark because he's useful to me in ministry. Here's the point. Paul and Mark divided. There was a sharp disagreement. A wall was erected. But somehow, between Acts 15 and here, they reconciled because the Christian faith breaks down walls that divide us. By the way, Mark is mentioned again in 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter calls him his son in the faith and most scholars agree this is the Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark. What if they had not reconciled? I don't know who was in the wrong here. Some suggest Mark was a baby and needed the firm correction of Paul. Others suggested that he was immature and needed the gracious acceptance of cousin Barnabas. I don't know, don't really care. What I do know is that they reconciled. Even in the midst of ministry, folks, divisions happen. And reconciliation for the cause and the glory of Christ takes repentance and forgiveness because the very glory of Christ is at stake. True Christianity breaks down walls. If you are divided with a brother or sister in Christ, listen to me. If you are divided with a brother or sister in Christ, one or both of you is wrong. Repentance and forgiveness must be pursued and granted because true Christianity breaks down barriers.
that divide us. Let's stand for prayer. Truth is, Father, most of us would not be uh, in this room hanging out together. <laughs> We'd be in a trance somewhere looking for something to eat if it were not for Christ. And, and you have brought us together from a myriad of different backgrounds and social strata. <laughs> and you have brought us together in Christ, creating one new man. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you would continue to do your work and help us to take down walls. As we reach out to unbelievers, take down walls. And that you would help us to take down walls that divide even us. In Christ's name, amen.